Greetings again, everyone, and welcome to Wednesdays with Wesley, the podcast where we dive deep into the sermons of John Wesley. And I'm here with my colleague, Jason Baxter, once again. And today, Jason, we're diving into one of the great sermons in the canon that <laughs> is probably the most controversial for many people. It's the Sermon on Free Grace, which is not controversial, but here Wesley gets into talking about the doctrine of predestination. And you were saying before we came on that this is the one where you get worked up. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to do my best to remind myself um, that there are people that I love and respect as Christians that hold this doctrine very sincerely. Um, but I very sincerely do not hold to it, but hopefully we can have some good discussion on it today. Yeah, I think so. I grew up in the PCA Presbyterian church where we memorized the Westminster shorter catechism and predestination was certainly part of that. Although it's interesting. I think there's a lot of doctrinal assumptions about predestination that we make. And even many people who come from a reformed Calvinist tradition, would not ascribe to predestination necessarily as Wesley portrays it. Mm -hmm. So I think like with most things, there's a, there's a varying degrees of, of, of ways of talking about this, but Wesley does not pull any punches when he talks about this, even though, as you said, we were talking at the beginning of the sermon, he kind of gives a disclaimer, sort of like uh, a don't at me, you'd put on Facebook, you know, that he <laughs> says, if you're going to respond, be nice about it to, to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then later on in the sermon, he says, if you hold this doctrine, you're making God to be worse than the devil. So I'm, I'm not sure if that was the meekness he was hoping to get from other people um, if they responded to him. And, and I think your point is well taken. It's something we have to be aware of that when we get into these kinds of conversations, we, we build straw men that are easy to knock down and don't necessarily represent the complexity and the nuance of what actual people think. And, and even so, I am grateful. I give thanks to God that he delivered you out of Egypt, that you came over to the Wesleyan way and uh, were able to escape from Presbyterianism. Well, I, I, obviously, I mean, I, I embrace Wesleyan theology wholeheartedly, and, and there, that was really attractive to me. But I am very thankful for the upbringing I had in that, in that mm -hmm. tradition, because it does take the sovereignty of God seriously. It does take uh, rigorous biblical inquiry seriously. I mean, there are things I would not agree with now, but I'm very grateful for that, that grounding because it enables me to have this kind of conversation more effectively, I think, and, and with a little bit more compassion than I might have otherwise. Than what I just demonstrated. Well, so, you know, sometimes <laughs> I think we, like in my situation, I think sometimes people come out of one tradition and join another, and then they'll react very strongly against that which they've left. So we see a lot of people now saying that they are ex-evangelicals. You know, they've come out of the evangelical tradition, so they're going to push the pendulum so far to the other side to get away from that. And I think there's not a lot of wisdom in that. I think you have to say, what is the best of the traditions that I'm bringing forward? And even Wesley himself would say, in effect, I'm a, within a hair's breadth of being a Calvinist, so he doesn't completely reject this, I think, or all of what Calvin says. I think there's, a, there's an assumption that Calvinism bad, Wesleyan good, and some Wesleyan circles, 
And certainly on the Calvinist side, you know, Calvinism, good art, Wesleyan Arminianism is, is uh, Pelagian antinomian, you know, kind of whatever. And um, so, so we have to give ourselves some grace and yep. to be able to say that we, we need to take the best of these things where we can argue about those, those, um, those minor points, although predestination may not be a minor point. I guess we'll have to decide that as we go through our discussion of the sermon. But I think it's important to, to talk about where things agree first. Mm-hmm. And sure. that is in the universals. Wesley's theology begins with universals, as does most Orthodox Christian theology. The universal, universality of humanity that all humans are made in the image of God. Not really a disputable point. That, as we said in last week's discussion on original sin, all humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says that. That's the doctrine of original sin. We agree on that. And we also believe in the universality of grace, that God initiates salvation for all people through God's free grace in order to save them from sin and death. Now, this is where the, the contrast comes, is in the universality of grace. We believe in the universality of humanity, the universality of sin. To me, that's, that's the ultimate inclusive statement that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are made in God's image. But I think Wesley is also inclusive of the idea that God's grace is extended to all people, that mm-hmm. God initiates salvation for all, that God desires all to be saved from sin and death. Now, in contrast, the doctrine of election in the Calvinist reform side of the house tends to say, yes, all are made in the image of God. Yes, all are under original sin. But God's sovereign will predetermines from the beginning that some are elected to salvation while some or most are damned, that God's sovereignty is God's prevalent attribute. Yeah, I I think that the the issue of sovereignty, I think, is a fascinating one in Wesleyan theology, um, because in, in the straw man on the other side, it's not like we dispense with sovereignty, like we still believe in sovereignty, but we believe that God sovereignly chose to allow us to have free will. He didn't have to do that. He could have predetermined it, but he didn't. Um, and so I think when we talk about sovereignty, for us, that isn't a prevalent attribute. Um, it's not an unimportant attribute. I'm not trying to say that, but it's not the defining attribute of how God interacts with humanity. Yeah. And how does God exercise that sovereignty? That becomes the real issue. Yes. And for Wesley, God is exercising that sovereignty by giving people the opportunity to respond to his grace and, and giving, and indeed empowering them to do so. Because mm-hmm. as we're, as we're going to see, as we study Wesley, a lot of people, particularly on who are not Wesleyans, would say, well, you just believe in absolute free will, that humans have absolute free will. That's not exactly what Wesley talks about. No. What he really talks about is a freed will, that God's grace and the Holy Spirit and frees our will to be able to respond to God. That it's not simply that we're free agents running around out there trying to decide on our own. Yeah, and I think that that's really helpful. And I always... I always struggle over the, the, the total depravity issue, you know, because 
you know, there is a sense in, in which we get very close to articulating that. Um, and I, and I've heard Wesley scholars talk about Wesley agrees when it comes to total depravity and it's, it's tough, but I mean, we take very, very seriously the sin nature and its crippling effect on human beings and how we are hopeless apart from God's grace. And that's important. And that we also talked about original righteousness too. And so there is a restoration. Um, so we, we may be depraved, but, but there's, a, there's a solution to the problem. Yep. Now, if you go to the Westminster Confession from 1643, chapter three, articles six and seven, you read sort of the statement here about predestination. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory so that he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto, Wherefore, they who are elected are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and ordain them with dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So here again, there are those who are elected and those who God was pleased to pass by and uh, to ordain them with dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So the idea is that God is so sovereign that he knows in advance who will and who won't. And so it's, it's kind of predetermined. I remember taking Jerry Wall's class in seminary where we talked about determinism, whether it's hard determinism or soft determinism. And of course he responded very, very, uh, <laughs> very robustly against Yes, this, this whole idea, as does Wesley. And so the key question here is, who is God's salvation for and how is that salvation affected? This is where we hit the contrast, that both the reform view, the Westminster Confession, and Wesley would agree that humanity is bound in original sin and in need of redemption. Both agree that God initiates salvation but that Calvinist side of the house believes that salvation is only given to some of the elect of God's sovereign or given to some who would be the elect, I should say more precisely. Um, while Wesleyans believe that God offers salvation to all, though not all will receive it. And I, I don't want to interrupt here, Bob, even though I'm going to. Go ahead. Uh, but And I don't, and I'm, I don't want to take us on a rabbit trail, but I think this is important to note. I've heard you share before about your experience um, when you basically went through the confirmation process of having to memorize the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And so you've talked about what a powerful experience that was and how that, that set a good, stable foundation, even if you found some parts of it that, that you rebuilt, so to speak. Um, it gave you a good foundation. And, and I think that's one of the things that we want to point out about Calvinism that's indirectly related to their, 
their theology. They do an excellent job of teaching it and giving people a solid foundation in their doctrine and thinking. And when you compare what we've done in Methodism, at least United Methodism, how we've gone down the road of pluralism, it, it's taken us to this sort of anything goes place um, in, in some cases. And so uh, I just want to point out that and, and say that that is something I admire about the, that, that tradition. Yeah, it's, it was shocking to me coming into the United Methodist Church how little people knew of their doctrine. Whereas, I mean, even to the point of people saying, well, we're not a doctrinal church. We're not a confessional church. Your doctrine doesn't really matter that much. Well, I mean, you do have the articles of religion, but how many people have actually looked at them? Right. Um, we looked at them. <laughs> we <laughs> looked at them in depth. I mean, I was in ninth grade when we did that. So there, there's a high expectation, a high bar for knowing one's doctrinal heritage. And I think there is a real value to that. And it does give you something to compare things to so that you're not simply, you know, uh, bouncing back and forth or kind of blown to and fro um, by every wind that comes through, which is certainly true of a lot of United Methodism. I, I think when we look at the pluralism of our own denomination, and that's another rabbit trail to go down, but, but one of the things that I think happens is people say, well, people have turned to a more pluralistic, you know, progressivism or, or, you know, gone after the German theologians kind of thing. My sort of response says, I don't think they ever got the real thing in the first place. I mean, you know, when, when you look at it from that perspective, if you look at what's being done in local churches, uh, it, it, at least coming from the tradition I came from, if you turn away from it, you know it precisely what you're turning away from. <laughs> and, and I, and I, and I wouldn't say I turned away from it. I mean, I think I just enhanced it. You know, I think, I think my understanding of the Westminster confession and the shorter catechism has made me a better Wesleyan than, than I would have been otherwise. And let me just apologize for the dogs in the background there. Apparently they have strong feelings about this issue too, um, that they wanted to interject. So sorry about that. This okay. Is the story of COVID at home. We'll get the amens in the background. Yeah. So the sermon is written in 1739. That's important. It's after Wesley's own Aldersgate experience. So you can kind of do a, a BA. AA before Aldersgate, after Aldersgate kind of view of Wesley's sermons. And it's written in order to criticize the doctrine of predestination held by Calvinists, including his friend and former Methodist, George Whitfield. George Whitfield and John Wesley, along with Charles Wesley and several others, were in the Holy Club together in Oxford. But Whitfield eventually becomes far more Calvinist and begins to preach in that way. So there's a there's kind of a rift in the movement at that point. And so Wesley rejects this doctrine of predestination as blasphemy for, as, as you said, Jason, and as he says in the sermon, for it makes God more false, more cruel, more unjust. Uh, right. And so he agrees to a point with the Calvinists, acknowledging God's sovereignty as a divine attribute. But Wesley saw God's love as God's defining attribute. So it's, it's a matter of emphasis. A Calvinist view emphasizes God's sovereignty, while the Wesleyan view emphasizes God's love. And so in Wesley's theology, God's sovereignty can never countermand God's love. 
Yeah. And that's, I think that's an interesting discussion. I go back to the quote you read from the Westminster Catechism um, that it somehow pleases God for people to face that kind of eternal damnation. Um, and, and then there's, of course, this thinking that God is glorified by that. I remember I was uh, working at a Christian ministry one time and I was walking down the hall with a guy and uh, I just said, hey, how was your weekend? And he's like, well, it was good, but uh, my brother-in-law has turned away from the Lord and, uh, you know, we're just we're saddened by that. And I was like, well, I, you know, we can pray for him and I hope that he will turn his heart back, you know, and he says, I don't know, maybe, maybe God needs um, to be glorified by his damnation. And I was just, I didn't know what to say to that, you know, cause I'm like, this is your brother-in-law that you're talking about. Um, and so I don't want to say that it's a callousness, but um, it's definitely a different emphasis on what God is focused on. Yeah. I used to joke that you, you never meet a Calvinist who believes they're one of the damned. <laughs> right. Right. But then again, you do meet people and throughout the course of ministry, you do meet people who do feel like they're kind of cursed or yep. they're outside of God's grace. They, they do feel that way. So I don't use that joke too much anymore because I have known people who have felt that way. And it, and it, and I think it, that sort of Calvinist reform view is baked into a lot of American Christianity, even to a lot of Wesleyan, you know, Methodists to, to think that, you know, well, I'm just, I'm sort of, this is God's will. This is God's way of doing things. God is teaching me something. God is punishing me for something. God is, you know, mm -hmm. on the, on the way toward, toward this, everything happens for a reason, right? That sort of thing. Um, and and it's really difficult to get around that with people. And in some places, it creates a sticky theological situation because obviously sometimes in the Old Testament, God does visit things on people. So, you know, you've got you've to kind of wrestle with that too. Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, I know you're going to talk about this in, in just a, a little bit uh, in terms of kind of where this takes our, our God concept, but I think in in the spirit of charity and integrity, it's important to recognize that where that Calvinist idea comes from is from a place of trying to honor and glorify God. Absolutely. It's, really, it's really coming from a, a place of respect. And I think for those of us that don't hold that or haven't been grounded in that tradition, it's hard to, to see that. And it just sounds shocking but it really comes from a desire to hold God in the highest honor possible. Yeah. And again, th this is a point of contention, but it doesn't need to be a deal breaker between we wouldn't call each other, not Christian one way or the other. Yeah. At least I wouldn't, I don't know about people on the other side of the fence, but, yeah. but we'll yeah. see about that. But let's look at the sermon itself. The key text for Wesley is Romans eight 32. I'm going to read it from the NRSV. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? And Wesley adds his comment to that. How freely does God love the world? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The grace or love of God whence cometh our salvation is free in all and free for all. That's the, if you want to talk about salvation, 
from a Wesleyan perspective, that is a great way to frame it. Free in all and free for all. So free in all, that grace is initiated by God. Here, Wesley agrees with the Calvinist that grace is free to, in all to whom it is given, that it's initiated by God, that it comes from God, that it does not depend on any power or merit in man. This is the Ephesians 2. By grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Wesley absolutely agrees with, with that. It's not dependent on anything he has done or anything that he is, that God is the author of anything good in human beings. And it is God who freely gives the son. And so if you have an understanding of original sin, that we are in that place, total depravity, if you want to call it that, or simply, you know, locked in slavery to sin, you need free grace. You need God to offer that grace to you because you cannot do it on your own. Again, this pushes back against that idea of absolute free will. We can't respond to God unless God gives us the ability to do so, which he, he does. Yeah. And I think, too, um, I'm not always sure what the exact distinctions are between the idea of common grace and prevenient grace. I think there's a lot of, of similarity. Um, but you know, both sides definitely agree and acknowledge that any good that happens is not something inherent to ourselves. It's always derived from God's grace. Right. But here's where the departure comes. And that is, Wesley says, it's free in all, it's initiated by God, but it's free far all. This is the sharp departure. And this follows Wesley's understanding that he lays out in the two sermons we've looked at previously, the image of God and original sin. The universality of God's love for humanity, the universality of human sin naturally proceeds to a universal move of God's grace from which no one is excluded. If not, then God is not really a God of love. Hmm. All may be redeemed, not that all are. It's the universality of grace versus universalism. And that is a whole nother rabbit trail we can go down. <laughs> we won't do that. Yeah, <laughs> but we won't do that. But, but I think this is it, the, the natural progression. All, all are made in the image of God. All have sinned. Therefore, all are offered God's grace. That's really the idea for Wesley. And it seems logical and natural from that perspective. Yeah, and, and really, it's, it's the point that all means all. I remember one time, um, one of my good, good friends at the Navigators, who I love dearly, but he is a, a committed Calvinist, and we were having pizza one day, and I said, all of you go ahead and get a piece of pizza, and then I told him, I said, no, not you, I only meant the people that I wanted to get the pizza, all doesn't mean all, and so, you know, we were kind of going, we, we would always give each other a, a hard time about that, but in, in the Wesleyan vocabulary when we talk about all that's not just limited to to a certain people but it really means all yeah and so this is this is the critique that wesley gives of that idea of predestination he's going to argue from both theology and from anthropology mm -hmm. and so that that the mistakes of calvinism or that it makes god into what some have called a moral monster they takes away the freedom that is part of our creation as humans made in the image of God. Remember that liberty 
as part of the idea of being made in the image of God, Wesley talks about that in that particular sermon. And so in effect, Wesley's saying that Calvinism, or I want to, I want to be more specific, not Calvinism as a whole, but, but the doctrine of predestination specifically runs roughshod over the doctrine of the image of God, because it says that we're not all really created with that, with that sense of freedom, that our freedom is limited. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, and I think that's an important distinction about narrowing it down to this doctrine. And I, I, I would just add a comment that I don't, and I know people would disagree with me on this. I don't think this can be resolved exegetically. And, and Wesley kind of reveals that, I think, later in his sermon is he's trying to, to talk about how these texts interact with each other that seem to say different things. So I think we can go back and forth over that all day long. The real concern for me, and as I've worked pastorally with people, is what sort of God concept does this leave us with at the end of the day? And so in, in you know, that first point you made just a little bit earlier, um, that, that I, I think this doctrine has the potential to give us a really disturbing God concept that may not be reflective of the meta narrative of scripture. Yeah. And on the other hand, we may, we may be in danger of, of making God too, too, uh, too grace filled, you know, I mean, in that sense, um, you, you might trend toward an open theism, you know, and that was one of the questions when we talked about this before that comes up all the time, open theism being the idea that, you know, sort of the future is open and you can do whatever, you know, God will do what God will do and, and was changeable and all those kinds of things. Um, and I don't think Wesley wants to go there either. So it's kind of like, where do you find the, again, if you're pushing the pendulum, where do you find the sweet spot? And I think that's where you kind of have to settle into exegetically the, the, the ambiguity there at times uh, between those two things. Yep. But here's what Wesley says about uh, predestination. He says, the greater part of mankind God hath ordained to death, and it is not free for them. Them God uh, hateth, and therefore, before they were born, decreed that they should die eternally. And this he absolutely decreed because so was his good pleasure, because it was his sovereign will. Accordingly, they are born for this, to be destroyed body and soul in hell, and they grow up under the irrevocable curse of God without any possibility of redemption. For what God gives, he gives only for this, to increase, not prevent their damnation. Wow. Yeah, that is a pretty pointed critique. So I'm curious to ask you, so having grown up in the PCA, how fair is that description, would you say? Um, I, I think, I mean, you're, you're asking me to tap back into my memory of how I thought about it back then. I mean, when you're, when you're a kid, you tend to just kind of say, okay, well, that's really the way it is. And, you know, we weren't presented the other side of the argument, which is what we're trying to do here. I think, um, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the idea is that you, you are a Christian, therefore you must be one of the elect. So you don't think about it too much. Right. And, but, but, you know, as Wesley's going to go on to talk about, what does that mean for things like evangelism? Like, why do I have to keep going to the altar and feeling like I need more assurance? 
and, and things like that. So to make sure I'm, you know, one of the, one of the elect or, or what have you. So it, it's a, it's a doctrine that leaves you kind of asking the question, where do I fit? Where do I, where do I find my security? Right. Um, you know, I mean, uh, this uh, eternal security is another part of this, but how do you know if God is the one who's ordained it, he's ordained it from the beginning of time. Well, how can I say that I have eternal security because I'm not sovereign to know that only God is right. Whereas nothing you can do. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about that. Whereas in the Wesleyan idea. Yeah. I mean, I make a decision. I'm going to walk in that grace. I'm going to grow in sanctification. I'm going to, you know, um, not, I mean, it's, I'm going to do that in response to God's initiative, but there's still, there's still a place where I can kind of have an assurance of where I am. And, and for Wesley, that was a huge thing, you know, the, having that assurance, the witness of our spirit with the Holy spirit, that we are children of God. That's a huge part of this deal. And I don't know how you get that fully in a, in a predestination mindset. I mean, every year at, at summer camp, you know, we had to kind of rededicate our lives. And so every year we'd go down to the campfire with weeping and gnashing of teeth and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it was very emotional, but, but it was always kind of like, well, I just want to make sure I always got to make sure that I'm, but, but how could I possibly be sure if I take this to its full extent, I don't know for sure. I could be living this lie. You know that that I've been working this whole time as a Christian, and and doing everything and working, but then it's like, well, sorry, at the end of the day, you were you were not one of the, you did not get your union card, you know, at the at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and again, that's kind of a caricature in some ways of of really what I don't know too many Calvinists who actually believe this jot and tittle. You know, right. th- that's the other piece to this. Again, there are varying ways of thinking about it. And I think Wesley does do the same thing. He does set up a straw man too here. Yeah. I think we have to acknowledge that he's taking the absolute worst understanding of this doctrine and then beating the, the heck out of it. Yeah. Um, I was going to say beating the hell out of it, which is really what he's trying to do. I think. <laughs> you know, so, so we have to be mindful of that. Um, when we read this, he's really, again, he, he's pushing the pendulum pretty far. So we have to keep that in mind too. John Wesley is not above hyperbole or, or speaking, uh, you know, making a straw man himself. So we have to acknowledge that as well. Yeah. Um, and so he goes on to talk about the effects of this doctrine. So if we spin this logically out and we take it at its, at its most extreme form, what does it do? Well, he says, first of all, that if, if the doctrine of predestination is true, then all preaching is in vain, that the proclamation of the gospel is useless. It's useless to those who are elect, who will be saved with or without it. And it's useless to those who are damned because they cannot be saved. So what are we doing on Sunday morning in that case? Right. Right. And this is one of those things, you know, you mentioned earlier, and I think Wesley acknowledges that in this sermon, that when you actually talk about the doctrine with folks that believe in predestination, they want to say, well, I don't really believe that, you know, and, and folks will say that. And I don't think that they're being dishonest at all. But the question for me has always been, when you carry it, the way you were saying it earlier, when you carry it out to its place 
fully logically, how do you avoid that at the end of the day? You can try to rephrase it and nuance it, but at the end of the day, how is it still important to preach the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. What, what's the purpose of doing so if it's predetermined? Right. Um, and secondly, then, and this is important for us as Westlands because we're all about holiness. He says that it destroys that holiness, which is the end of all the ordinances of God. In other words, what, what reason do I have to work toward holiness or to, to grow in that grace if I'm, if I'm already determined from the beginning? It takes away the motives proposed in the scriptures, the reward of heaven or hell. Um, there's no motivation to struggle with holiness or bear the cross if one believes one is damned. And I, I think that this is interesting that it's the second of three points. And I would want to make the argument that um, it's second because it's central for Wesley. I, I think as this debate between Calvinism and uh, Arminianism played out with John Wesley. Uh, I mean, the roots of our movement were about becoming like Jesus, being sanctified, becoming holy. And I think that was such a bedrock conviction that that's really the crux of this issue for Wesley, is that that he's concerned that folks that believe in predestination will not pursue that life of holiness to which we are called. Yeah, and that's that's the important thing for Wesley. Um, he says a sick person who believes in predestination has no motive to do what is necessary to get well. Mm-hmm. So directly, this is a quote, so directly does this doctrine tend to shut the very gate of holiness in general to hinder unholy men from ever approaching there to or striving to enter in there at. Mm-hmm. So it kills your motivation to holiness. And, and you do see this to some degree. If you're in a, if you're in a once saved, always saved, uh, kind of, kind of approach. And, and and again, this is not everyone in that approach, but, but if you take it to its extreme, you, you believe that you are saved, you name the moment that you are saved. Of course, if you're a strict Calvinist predestination person, you don't know for sure if that's really the case or not. Um, it happened before time, right? Yeah. When were you saved? Well, at, you know, before creation. Um, but, but what do I do next? I mean, that was the thing I think that, um, that was really appealing to me about the Wesleyan way was that there was something beyond simply praying the sinner's prayer, which is not in the Bible, by the way, Mm -hmm. but, but there was something beyond that, something beyond the moment of salvation but that was not the end point. That was the beginning point. Yeah. And it was about growing in holiness, that God's grace is not simply about getting me locked in for heaven when I die, but rather was going to work in me to turn me into the person God created me to be from the very beginning. That's the movement toward holiness. And, uh, you know, without that, what do you do? I mean, you just kind of, you know, cruise along and then you wind up with all kinds of, of speculation about who's in and who's out, which is not the Wesleyan question at all. It's the Wesleyan question is, where are you now? Right. Yeah. I mean, he says, you know, that, um, this doctrine destroys the branches of holiness that necessitate meekness and love, particularly love of enemies, 
It's the kind of doctrine that can sour and sharpen the spirit toward others, he says, regarding others as reprobate. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, that that's a, I remember, I wish I could remember this guy's name. I just, it's leaving me right now. But there's a story about how Calvin was having a dispute with, um, with another reformer, right? And I mean, it was getting ugly. And if you read those disputes, I mean, they killed each other over it. And there was this horrible situation where uh, Calvin basically had this guy burned. Servetus. Sir, sir, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah thank you. Right. And, and, and I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but like the story goes that it was on green wood. And so it just, went for a really long time and was, was ugly. And I think part of the problem was there is like, well, this guy's a reprobate anyways. Therefore, um, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do right now. Um, it just sort of, uh, and, and oddly enough, that doesn't fit into a picture of holiness the way Jesus describes it in terms of how we treat our enemies. Right, right. Yeah, that's an important piece. I mean, again, as I've said many times, if you really want to get at the gist of what it means to be a Wesleyan, holiness is at the root of that. Entire sanctification, Christian perfection, all those things kind of bound up in the same concept. That's really what it comes down to, the unique approach to, to the Christian faith, which is, which is grounded biblically yeah. as well. And, and then thirdly, Wesley says about this doctrine that it destroys the comfort of religion, the happiness of Christianity. This, is, this goes to that idea of assurance that I was talking about earlier, that those who believe they are reprobates see all the promises of God as lost to them. And I've known people like this who just, you know, and, and they become almost, um, you know, they almost see themselves as less than human. I mean, th- there are people who just believe that they are, they are really, really uh, a mistake. Um, you know, it reminds me of that line in, in uh, the movie Tombstone, which is one of my favorite movies. Great movie. You know, and it, and it talks about Doc Holliday's talking about Johnny Ringo. And, and he says he wants revenge. And Wyatt Earp says, well, revenge for what? And, and, <laughs> and Doc Holliday says he wants revenge for being born. Right. That's, right. that's kind of this idea of thinking you're so far gone, you have no, no response. Yeah. Um, and so the, the witness of the spirit, that assurance is lost to those who are elect because they are unsure of their election. And so Wesley says, and I appeal to any of you who hold this doctrine to say between God and your own hearts, whether you have not often a return of doubts concerning your election or perseverance. Here again is that idea of returning to the altar over and over again. Mm-hmm because you're just not sure. And therefore, Wesley says, that doctrine is not of God because it tends to obstruct, if not destroy, this great work of the Holy Ghost, whence flows this chief comfort of the religion, the happiness of Christianity. What is the happiness of Christianity for Wesley? Assurance. Assurance that God is doing what he said he was going to do in us when we respond to him. Yeah, and this is one of the ironies of this debate, because if I you know, if we were to have my, my Calvinist friend on here with us right now, he would say that one of the reasons he is a Calvinist is he appreciates the comfort that he gets from the assur- assurance of salvation. 
you know, um, that he's been elected. It has nothing to do with him. Um, I mean, it goes back to how do you know you were truly elected um, until the end. But, um, you know, it's it's funny. That was a key. Con- I think that's a key concern for, for both sides of this discussion. Uh, one of the things that I I'm going to float this out here just to say this is something that occurs to me is that oftentimes that theological camp is very concerned about the past and about the future, Mm. about what happened in the past, either with God's election or with my response to salvation, when that happened, and then the future, what happens when I go to heaven, when I die. Whereas I think the Wesleyan idea is more about the present. Where are you in the midst of this? Are you growing in grace? Are you going on to perfection? Are you, you know, following the general rules? Are you, you know, are you doing those kinds of things? And it's not a, it's not a, a works righteousness kind of thing. That's how it gets painted a lot of times, but it is a, it is a, it is an attentiveness to growing the grace that God has given us in the present. Absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to, to point out that I think is just crucial in this discussion is a reductionistic view of salvation, right? I, I think that um, if we view salvation as something that only happens to us in the future, that we go to heaven when we die, I think that's a gross reduction of the biblical vision of of salvation. And one of the things that I I like to tell people is that I I grew up heathen, about as heathen as it can get. And the fact that I have the marriage that I do, the fact that I have purpose in my life, uh, the fact that I'm probably even still alive, given the some of the decisions I made as as a teenager, I can tell you that God has already saved me from so much before I've even died. And so there's a real sense in which um, this salvation that we talk about, yes, it is future, um, but it's also very much a present reality for us. Yeah, and Wesley will talk about this in one of his later sermons, that when he talks about salvation, he's not meeting primarily the going to heaven when you die. He's talking about a very present thing. Yeah. So it's important to keep that in mind um, and that assurance being a present thing, because that was a big thing for him. I mean, that's really what Aldersgate was about, May 24th, 1738, when he has that experience, that strangely warmed experience. That's an experience of assurance for him. A lot of people call it Wesley's conversion experience. The question is, what is a conversion to? Uh, Phil Brown, who's one of our members, gave me a book written in 1938 on uh, the conversion of the Wesleys and and the authors arguing there, was it, was it really a conversion to Christianity or was it a conversion of another sort? And I would say it's, it's a conversion to a real depth of assurance uh, to the Holy spirit uh, speaking within. Yeah. So, so Wesley would say that this doctrine uh, makes that assurance really difficult to get hold of. Fourthly, he says, it tends to destroy our zeal for good works, for whatever lessens our love must so far lessen our desire to do others good. Um, What difference does it make to serve the physical needs of others if they are destined for hell anyway? Yeah. It also destroys any need to evangelize, which is the greatest of all good works. 
I mean, I, I look at some of the things that have happened with Christianity and particularly, you know, Christian nationalism and the, the, the binding up of Christianity with a lot of violent imagery and things like that, that, that makes you just go. I mean, I think Wesley's got a point here that if I really believe in the gospel and I believe in the scriptures, I would not do those things. I would be zealous for good works. I would not um, allow them to lessen. I would see, you know, the, the physical needs of people as being important. I would see causing no harm, our first general rule, doing no harm as being a primary focus. But if, but if I believe that, you know, and, and I don't think people even have this belief at the front of their cortex when they do these things, I think it's just an inherent sort of idea that some are more deserving than others. Right. That if I'm one of the elect and everybody else is damned, that it doesn't really matter what I do to them. Again, I don't think that's a conscious thought, but I do think it does have an underlying thing. And, and that's kind of a, a counter to, to biblical Christianity in many ways. Yeah. And, and that was, um, this was probably a more appropriate place to talk about the, the servitus story. You know, um, I, 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 you know, I don't know that that was on the front of Calvin's mind when that situation was going down, but I can't help but wonder if it's like, hey, this guy's reprobate, so what does it really matter? Right, right. Fifth, Wesley says that this doctrine of predestination has a direct and manifest tendency to overthrow the whole Christian revelation. <laughs> That's a pretty grand yeah. statement. That it really makes the gospel unnecessary. It makes the gospel contradict itself and upends the whole witness of scripture. Um, and in paragraphs 20 to 22 of the sermon, he gives some scriptural proofs of the universality of God's offer of grace. Not all will receive it, but all are offered it. So again, if you take this to its logical conclusion, if everyone is predestined from the moment of birth or even before birth, whether they are elect or damned, then why is the preaching of the gospel necessary? Why do we have the scriptures? Um, I remember, I forget who it was in seminary who said this, but saying if, if the gospel is merely about who's saved and who's damned, then why is it so thick? You know, there's, there's a lot more stuff in there than that. Right. Um, and so at, at the end of the day, Wesley comes down and he says this Doctrine of predestination is blasphemy. It represents the holy God as worse than the devil. It upends God's justice, mercy, and truth. It makes God's word false. This was an interesting argument, I thought. It makes God's word false because even the devil has not said he wills all men to be saved. Hmm. So God says in 1 Timothy 2, 4, you know, the scripture says God wills all to be saved, but even, even Satan has not said that. So right. that makes God a liar if he does not will all to be saved. And there's right. this doctrine. It makes God unjust, condemning millions to hell, which even the devil cannot do. So it's God who's assigning these people, not even, not even Satan. And it makes God cruel because humans can find no rest while God rests in his high holy place, dooming them to endless misery. He says in the sermon, scripture cannot mean whatever it means besides that the God of truth is a liar. Let it mean what it will. It cannot mean that the judge of the world is unjust. No scripture can mean that God is not love or that his mercy is not over all his works. 
That is, whatever is whatever it proved besides, no scripture can prove predestination. So what's John Wesley getting at here? It's a little unclear to me. <laughs> yeah, this is the target ceasefire, lock and clear all weapons, drop the mic uh, argument that he's giving here. Um, yeah, he's now stood over the smoking corpse of his opponents and has planted his flag and saying, <laughs> you know, here it is, in effect. So then, so then the question becomes, what do we mean by the word elect? And, and so I think this is a helpful part of the sermon because he talks about what he means by that, or um, what he means is all who suffer Christ to make them alive. So th- those, who, those who come to Christ are those who are elected for this way, for right. salvation. Uh, Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Notice how it says predestined not to be damned or elected, but elected to be conformed, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is the purpose of election? to be conformed to the image of his son. What is the thrust of most Wesleyan theology? Renewal in the image of God. Yeah. There it is. The God, go ahead. I was just going to say that just goes back to the, I think that's the central issue here. And I should mention that I misspoke. I guess I'm used to three point sermons over five points that Wesley made, but I still think that second point is critical for him that, that, that he's, fearful that this doctrine is going to undermine people being uh, conformed to Christ. Yeah, it's, it's central. It, it comes up in everything Wesley talks about. He says, the, the, well, I think I wrote this down. Um, the God who made all humans in his image wills all humans to be saved, and he has made a way for all through his free grace. Those who receive that grace, he elects to become people conformed to the image of Christ, the image of God we were created to be, and removes their slavery to sin and death through the forgiveness of sins provided by the sacrifice of God's own self in Jesus Christ. Yeah. I think that's sort of a summary of what Wesley's saying here. He wills everyone to be saved because he made every human in his image, and he has made a way for that salvation through his free grace. And those who receive it are the elect. They become people conformed to the image of Christ. I was talking with a friend one time. I'm going to throw this out there for people to ponder. I'm not exactly sure where I've landed on it at this point. But I was talking with a, a Korean pastor one time. And he he was saying, well, from our culture, we don't have a, but it's, they don't, uh, he was telling me that they didn't view uh, human beings quite so individualistically. And so when he reads about the elect, he reads that God has elected the church, mm. that God has not elected individuals, but God has actually elected this community, right? And, and if a person chooses to join that community, they become part of that person, that, that community that God elected. And that, I think, resolves a lot of tensions because if God, God can co- elect that community before the foundation of the world and people still have uh, free, free will to join in that covenant. Well, and certainly that's the biblical precedent. God elects yeah. Israel and then God elects the church. 
Yep. So I think that's probably a, a way better way of approaching this than, than, yeah. but we're Westerners. So we tend to think individualistically, whereas for most of Christian history, that idea of election was more communal than, than it was individual. So how does Wesley counter this doctrine? What does he sort of offer as an alternative? Well, we would say it's the doctrine of prevenient grace. He would use the word preventing grace, but we, we use the word prevenient grace to make it a little bit more clear um, that it's God's grace offered to all of humans. Uh, it's not the redeeming grace that makes us holy, but it prompts us to move toward God. I was just working this morning on the sermon for March 14th, and on the prodigal son, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of, of how God's grace is, is always expectant, always reaching out, always wanting to, to draw us back. But I put in the sermon, you know, if you think about the prodigal son who leaves home, finds himself, you know, dissipates all of his money, finds himself in a pigsty, God does not go yank him or the father does not go yank him out of the pig, pigsty. Right. He waits for him to turn to do that, but the love is always there inviting him to do so. So it's the kind of grace that prompts us to move toward God. Prevenient, pre meaning before, vini meaning come. It invites us. And, and Ken Collins in his lecture on this for Asbury, which you can find online, Seedbed has a lot of his lectures on these sermons. And I borrow from them uh, when, when I'm doing this somewhat. Because I think he's got a really good, obviously, he's, he's one of the top Wesley scholars of all time. And so he's got really a great way of thinking about this. So I steal this from him. But he says that prevenient grace enables us to turn to God and it restores four faculties in us. It gives us a measure of freedom, the freedom to choose God. It gives us conscience, uh, which is not natural to us, but a species of grace that reveals the presence of God in our lives. At any time we have a prick of conscience, it is, it is really a, a sign of God's prevenient grace. That we have knowledge of the moral law, a sense of what is holy, just, and good, and a basic understanding of the attributes of God. So, so that it kind of gives us a baseline from which to, to begin our turn toward God. Um, uh, and maybe more, that's where common grace comes in. You know, Paul talks about that in Romans 1, the idea that God's creation sort of manifests itself, some natural laws, things like that, that are part of that process that, that would draw him, draw us closer to him. And so there's no excuse, Paul says. I think that's kind of where, where Wesley's getting with prevenient grace. It's offered to us all. I would say also it's, a, it's the echo of the image of God in us, that we're always trying to fill that space. Was Augustine who says, you know, our hearts are restless till we find our rest in you. There's a hole in us that needs to be filled, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked last time about original sin and the explanatory power of that doctrine. And I, for me, prevenient grace falls in that category as well. Of, of having tremendous explanatory power for how we experience the world, you know, because there are people that are not Christians. And, and as, as any honest person will note, sometimes we see non-Christians 
living more like Jesus than some Christians do, right? And and that's that's because of the grace of God. It's because of this grace that comes before that makes that possible. So Bravinia grace is an important doctrine. Yep. But it's extended to all. Yep, to everyone. And that's the difference. The difference between uh, sort of predetermination and God's grace being extended to all. And so this Bravinia grace is what activates our human freedom. Again, this is, this is what frees our will to respond to God. The Holy Spirit makes overtures to us through these faculties, but we can reject them. We're, we're clear that we can reject them. We can decide to stay in the pigsty if we want. Um, these are given sovereignly by God. So here again, God's sovereignty, how is it exercised? Is it exercised in a sorting or is it exercised in a universal movement of grace, a calling, a wooing? as I've heard some put it, um, that's what God chooses to do. And so as, as Wesleyans, that's what we believe God is doing, that, that, that sovereignty of God is being used to draw us all toward him. And so in Praveni grace, God in effect props us up so that we can be redeemable. It's that place where we come to ourselves. That, that's the other interesting thing in working on this prodigal son passage while while he's in the while he's in the pigsty, it, the the text says he came to himself. And I was reading one commentator. Actually, it's Wesley, Wesley, who says of that particular verse. He says before that he was beside himself. Huh. He wasn't being his authentic self. You know, he's beside himself. You know, when we're beside ourselves, we we're not who we who we are, yeah. and so. He comes to himself. He gets a sense about who he really is in his current state. I love that, that yeah. imagery. That really struck me today as I was reading that. So Praveni Grace enables us to come to ourselves, to turn toward home, as it were, and to say, you know, I'll go home to my father. I'll say I've sinned against you and against heaven. I just want to be, I just be want, to, want to be one of your servants. That's really helpful. Yeah. Original sin moves us away from our, from our authentic personhood, that freedom. So for us to be redeemed, God must act first. This is God's call to us. This is the announcement that there is delivery from slavery to sin. Hmm. So again, for me, coming out of a very Reformed Calvinist background, this was the, the doctrine that really grabbed hold of me was this idea of God's universal offer of grace and the spirit working within us. And when I, when I think about that, it, it certainly runs counter when I look at other people, because it's easy for us in a, in a sort of culturally reformed way of thinking about it. Cause I think the whole culture tends to think this way. Some people are just reprobate and they're, they're, they're gone. But Praveni Grace, if I believe in Praveni Grace, if I take that to its logical extension, then I have to believe that no matter who I'm looking at, no matter how heinous or terrible a person they might appear to be, God's Praveni Grace is being offered to them. There's always a shot. Yeah. And that's good news for us, <laughs> for all of us. Yeah, I think it's the best news. And, and we're going to talk more about what that develops into in subsequent sermons. But any final thoughts on free grace, Jason, before we wrap? Yeah, I, I just have one other thing that came to me as you've been talking about the prodigal son. 
if my memory's failing me, that's that's possible. But I believe it was N.T. Wright in the challenge of Jesus when he addresses that passage. He questions whether the the lost son is referring to Israel to mm. a collective group or not. Right. And so when Wright reads that passage, he reads it um, in terms of pl- applying to a community. Right. Um, mm. So similar to our discussion earlier. Uh, and so I think. Again, and you, uh, I think you mentioned the book uh, another time about uh, misreading scripture through Western eyes. And uh, I, I think that one of the ways we really misread scripture here in the West is we, we really fail to understand the communal nature of our, our humanity and how that plays into everything. Um, yeah, I think that's an important way of looking at that particular passage, because clearly as he tells the parable and he doesn't go on on and explain the parable, right. But the older son in that parable is the Pharisees. It's a, it's a collectivism, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're the older son. They're the ones who are saying, well, why are you reaching out to all these people? Because the original question is why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Yeah. So there is a collectivism there. So people tend to think of it in that sense, in terms of where I, where I belong. So yeah, that's, that's a very important piece. That idea of, of communal election, um, you know, and, and, uh, and the universal offer of grace, I think does, does match up really well with, with the scriptures. Again, we read everything so individualistically mm-hmm. that I think it does blind us to the larger implications of what's going on. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, good stuff. Well, we're glad you joined us for this discussion of Wesley's sermon on free grace. We're going to do a a Wesley sermon every week. So we hope you'll join us again next Wednesday. I haven't picked which sermon we're going to do next, but we'll move to the next one here in the canon. And we'll look forward to talking with you then. You can contact me at pastorbk at tlumc.org. You can follow me on Twitter at RevBKaler. And we'll be glad to receive your questions or comments about the podcast. We'll see you next time on Wednesdays with Wesley. Take care, everybody.